0: Good evening. The collapse in Afghanistan picks up speed as more troops are being sent. The southern border is out of control, too, says the DHS secretary in a leaked tape and a radio icon dies. He got a start at WBAI. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, August 13th, 2021. The Taliban completed their sweep of Afghanistan south on Friday, taking four more provincial capitals and a lightning offensive that brought them closer to Kabul just weeks before the U.S. is set to officially end its two-decade war. In the last 24 hours, the country's second and third largest city, Herat in the west and Kandahar in the south, have fallen to the insurgents, as has the capital of the southern province of Helmand, where American, British and NATO forces fought some of the bloodiest battles of the conflict. While Kabul is not directly under threat yet, the resurgent Taliban were battling government forces in Logar province, some 50 miles from the capital. the United States plan to send in 3,000 troops to help evacuate some personnel from the U.S. embassy in Kabul. Britain and Canada are also sending forces to aid their evacuations. Denmark said it will temporarily close its embassy, while Germany is reducing its embassy staff to the absolute minimum. Secretary General of the United Nations Antonio Guterres said he was deeply disturbed by indications the Taliban were imposing severe restrictions in the areas under their control, targeting women. And journalists. Even a country that has tragically known generations of conflict, Afghanistan is in the throes of yet another chaotic and desperate chapter, an incredible tragedy for its long suffering people. Afghanistan is spinning out of control. In the last months alone, more than 1,000 people have been killed or injured from indiscriminate attacks against civilians notably in Helmand, Kandahar, and Herat provinces. The fighting between the Taliban and Afghan security forces in urban environments is causing tremendous harm. At least 241,000 people have been forced to flee from their homes, and the humanitarian needs are growing by the hour. And that's the U.N. Secretary General, Antonio Guterres. With only weeks remaining before the U.S. plans to withdraw its last troops, the fighters now advancing across the country ride on American-made Humvees and carry M-16s pilfered from Afghan forces. The United Nations Refugee Agency said nearly 250,000 Afghans have been forced to flee their homes since the end of May, and 80% of those displaced are women and children. The United States has promised to help about 18,000 former translators and other Afghan helpers evacuate the country from the airport in Kabul. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby says the evacuation is going smoothly.
1: But I do want to stress that airlift will not be a limiting factor in this mission. Airlift will not be a limiting factor. And as I said yesterday, uh, it's not all going to be uh, military aircraft that are used there are, uh, Hamid Karzai International Airport is still open, commercial flights are still going in and out. I don't want to convey the sense that every lift of every individual is going to be done on a gray military aircraft, though they will be made available to support, and as I said, it's not going to be a limiting factor. This is a specific, narrowly focused, tailored mission to help with the safe, secure movement of the reduction of civilian personnel in Kabul, as well as to help support the acceleration of the special immigrant visa process uh, by the State Department. That's what we're focused on.
0: And that's John Kirby. The surprising speed of the Taliban advance took the U.S. by surprise, planning a final pullout by September 11th, the 20th anniversary of the attacks in New York City and Washington that sparked the Afghan war. Kirby says the military is now focusing on pragmatic responses and not on why they were so surprised.
1: We are certainly concerned by the speed with which the Taliban has been moving. As we've said from the very beginning, this is a, and it still is, a moment for Afghan National Security and Defense Forces as well as their political leadership. No outcome has to be inevitable here. I'm not gonna speculate about surprise. We're obviously watching this just like you're watching this and seeing it happen in real time, and it's deeply concerning. The deteriorating conditions are a factor, a big factor in why the president has approved this mission to help support our, the reduction of, of personnel uh, there in Kabul. We're adjusting as best we can, given those conditions. We're still supporting the Afghan National Security and Defense Forces. We're still supporting the Afghan government, the elected government in, in Kabul. And that's what we're going to be focused on doing. We want to focus on what we are doing. We are supporting the Afghans in the field where and when we can. We're still making sure we have robust overarching counterterrorism capabilities in the region so that we can't suffer a threat from Afghanistan again. And I'll let the political situation play out. That's really not something that we're overly focused on right now.
0: And that's John Kirby's spokesperson for the Pentagon today. Meanwhile, in neighboring Pakistan, the country's national security advisor urged Afghan leaders to seek a negotiated settlement with the Taliban to avoid further violence and back home your homeland security secretary Alejandro Mayorkas claimed the Biden administration is going to lose the border crisis as unsustainable numbers of migrants continue to pour into the United States. Mayorkas' remarks came during a private meeting with Border Patrol agents in Texas. Around the same time, he announced that roughly 213,000 people were encountered attempting to cross the border illegally in July. Encounters stood at 74,000 in December 2020, weeks before Biden took office. They surpassed 172,000 in March, 173,000 78,000 in April, 180,000 in June, and 188,000 in July as Biden eased immigration restraints. Mayorkas spoke to the news media at the southern border today.
2: We built an architecture to test and isolate the migrants who make a legal claim for asylum. With respect to unaccompanied children, they are tested and cohorted on intake before we move them as rapidly as possible to the shelter of health and human services. With respect to families, we continue to operate centers where families are tested and isolated as needed. We are working and have established a system with non-governmental organizations in the communities to test and isolate family members as the situation warrants the predominant majority of single adults are expelled rapidly from the border patrol
0: and that's secretary mayorkas earlier today a couple of days ago i was down in mexico and i said look you know if our borders are the first line of defense we're going to lose and this is unsustainable that's what Mayorkas said in leaked audio obtained by Fox News. He continued, "We can't we can't continue like this. Our people in the field can't continue, and our system isn't built for it." And in more news, the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention signed off today on recommending a third dose of the Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 vaccines for some people with weakened immune systems. CDC head Dr. Rochelle Walensky's endorsement came just hours after the agency's Vaccine Advisory Committee voted unanimously to recommend additional shots for certain individuals, despite questions at the time about who would qualify for the extra dose.
3: I believe we have, I'm calculating correctly, Dr. Cohn, 11 yeses,
1: zero noes, and the ayes have it, and the recommendation is adopted. Yes, I have the same thing. The motion passes.
0: The CDC's recommendation, which advises healthcare providers on how to implement the FDA's update, spells out in more detail who should be considered moderately to severely immunocompromised. Such patients include those receiving active treatment for cancerous tumors or blood cancer, recipients of stem cell transplants within the last two years, those with advanced or untreated HIV, and those taking drugs that may suppress the immune system. Meanwhile, in the state of Mississippi, a state at the center of the raging spread of the Delta variant of the COVID virus and and at the near bottom of the pack when it comes to vaccinations totally Administered, Governor Tate Reeves says he is vaccinated against the COVID 19 virus and called on residents of his hard hit state to do the same.
2: The difference between this peak and our last peak is evident by the data. That difference lies within those who are vaccinated versus those who are not. I want to be clear I've been vaccinated. And if you're watching us on Facebook Live today, you probably got to watch me get vaccinated. My mom's been vaccinated. My dad's been vaccinated. My wife's been vaccinated. My grandmom has been vaccinated. I believe the vaccines are safe. I believe they are effective. And I believe that they are the best tool we have moving forward to beat the virus.
0: And that is the governor of Mississippi. Kate Reeves, a Republican. Mississippi's epic struggle with COVID 19 was front and center as the state grapples with the highest caseload to date. The highly contagious Delta variant spreads rapidly, and hospitals are pleading for staff and scrambling for beds. The problem was evident at the news conference itself. While some in the crowd of 150 or so attendees wore masks, many did not, including most of the dozen or so state legislators who sat in the front row for Reeves' announcement. And President Joe Biden resoundingly endorsed Governor Gavin Newsom of California against a looming recall vote on Thursday that was yesterday telegraphing that the United that the White House could come to Newsom's aid in the race's critical final weeks. The Biden administration had already gone on the record opposing the vote to oust Newsom. But Biden's statement was on a different order of magnitude and came as the White House considers deploying Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, or both, on Newsom's behalf. Newsom himself pleaded with Californians to vote no on the recall. What could happen on Election Day if we don't turn out in historic numbers to vote no on this recall? You have someone that's not just opposed to a woman's right to choose. He is. But actually wrote an op-ed saying women are not as smart as men. On issues of civic affairs, on issues of economics, on issues of politics. He's someone that doesn't believe in assault weapons ban. Someone that doesn't believe in a corporate tax, should be
2: zero. Doesn't even believe in a minimum wage. Yes, oh, no. yes, oh, no.
0: And as California's Democratic governor, Gavin Newsom, facing a recall election. The president in particular remains enormously popular among California Democrats. A recent poll from the Berkeley Institute of Government Studies found that the California electorate had large approval margins for the president's job performance, that is by a 22-point margin, among Democratic registered voters that jumps to an overwhelming 76-point approval edge for the president. And closer to home, Neil Conan, a radio virtuoso who has a rigorous journalist and congenial raconteur, anchored NPR's flagship call-in program, Talk of the Nation, for 12 years, died on Tuesday at his farm in Hawaii. He was 71. His wife, the travel writer, poet, and essayist Gretel Ehrlich, said the cause was brain cancer. In a broadcasting career that began when he was 17 and lasted five decades, Mr. Conan worked for NPR in New York, London, and Washington as an executive producer, foreign editor, managing editor, and news director. Here's an excerpt from his last ever broadcast in 2013. Time to say goodbye. As you probably know, this, after 21
4: years, is the final broadcast of Talk of the Nation, and after 36 years, my last day at NPR. Before I go, there are some people to thank. We're told that more than 3.6 million of you... Listen, each week, that book's Talk of the Nation in the top ten of all talk shows in the country. The currency of broadcasting is that number, the quantity of eyes and ears that can be delivered to soap manufacturers and car makers. To be honest, we do a little bit of that on public radio as well, but on Talk of the Nation in particular, listeners have voices too. This program works best when we find ways to engage your stories. So, in a minute or so, I will go back to where I started in public radio. I will be one of you again. A listener. Yes, a listener sponsor, but a listener critic, too. I will cry and laugh and yell at the radio and we listeners have a vital function. It is our job to hold member stations and NPR accountable. So right here, I form my own private contact with NPR and my member stations. I will listen and yes, I will open my checkbook, but I need some services In return, go and tell me the stories behind everything that happened in the world today. Explain why it happened and how it affects our lives. Do it every day. Tell me what's important. And don't waste my time with stupid stuff. Bye-bye. Signing off for Talk of the
0: Nation and from NPR News, I'm Neil Conan in Washington. And we'll continue to be true to that spirit here at WBAI and the Pacifica Network. Susan Goodwin was one of only two executive producers of Talk of the Nation. She's now senior reporter at WBAI's sister station, WPFW, in Washington, D.C. She says
3: Conan was a beloved coworker. He did have a reputation as being a bit gruff. And I started working with him on a show called Weekly Edition, the best of NPR. We used to troll through pieces and select and craft a show every week it was scary in the beginning because i was never really trained as a journalist i trained myself and he had been doing it for so many years i got over it real quick and we just developed a relationship of amazing trust from there uh we went on to talk of the nation his first day of talk of the nation was september 11th Believe it or not, what a day. I mean, he had guests hosted and the like, but his first official day as host was that day. Neil never went to college. He got kicked out of a couple of high schools. He walked into WBAI at 17 years old. He had been a listener. He said, train me. I want to do this. He never never forgot that he never lost his appreciation for the fact that a 17 year old kid could walk into a radio station and say help me i want to be on the air and it happened he was always so appreciative of that fact
0: newsrooms across america have been dealing with the me too movement NYC, NPR, these stations have had their, uh, their experiences and famous people. How did he deal with the other people he worked with in relation to those kind of things that are happening everywhere?
3: His bosses were always women. His first executive producer was Leith Bishop. Then it was myself. Our senior supervising producer was Carlene Watson. And there was never an issue. We never, we just, it didn't even notice. There were many, many young women on our staff He mentored them in very close relationships. I spoke to one of them, her name's Megan. She's reporting now for Colorado Public Radio. I didn't even ask her. She said how much she appreciated that that was never an issue. She never had to be concerned that this would get creepy. So he had incredibly wonderful relationships with young women and women bosses. Another interesting thing about this show, Talk of the Nation, when Carlene and I were running it, we had the highest priority on diversity in our guests and our callers. And Neil got that. He, you know, You can't be talk of the nation. You can't be talk of half the nation. Diverse callers aren't gonna call you unless they hear diverse voices on the air. Every week we would put on the board, okay, let's look at our guests. How many were white? How many were people of color? How many were women? How many were men? We actually got in a little trouble for doing that. Neil fully supported it. Can I tell you a story about him as a live host? Yes. Doing live radio is tough. He was so great at it. One day, a guest just wasn't there, okay? So Neil was no guest. I ran out into the national desk and I yelled, does anybody have a story they're working on that they can come in and talk about? And of course, Ari Shapiro raises his hand. If you know Ari, that makes sense. Okay, I said, Ari, right, come on in. I rush him into the room. Neil looks at me and said, what are we talking about? And I said, I don't know. Just ask him. Mike went on. He said, Ari, what are you working on? And they just went on from there. And, and that's the type of stuff you could do with Neil. He was just quick as a dime. And the other thing he was so great at, in, in addition to the news chops, was talking to callers. And again, for someone who had this reputation of being type of gruff guy, we spent. 20 minutes every day, what is our question to callers? Because we were insistent, he was insistent, that we get stories. For example, if we did abortion, we didn't say, what do you think about abortion? We did, did you have an abortion? And who did you talk to, to make that decision? Questions that would get people to recall and experience. And he did it with such empathy and gentleness. The stories that people brought to air were just incredible.
0: That was Susan Goodwin, who is a senior reporter at WPFW, the sister station of WBAI in Washington, D.C., who had been one of just two executive uh, producers of Neil Conan's program, Talk of the Nation. Meanwhile, another WBAI producer, Chris Hedges, remembered his time with Conan, including the time they were both kidnapped by Iraqi soldiers during the Gulf War.
2: I was reporting for NPR in Buenos Aires during the Falkland War. Now, I didn't have much radio experience. The British took their time getting to the islands. The NPR budgets were small then. Bill spent that time tutoring me how to do radio and then left me all of his equipment and told NPR it had been stolen at the airport. Neil Conan was and recommended that I cover, cover the story. Neil Conan was assigned as my editor, and NPR, for continuity's sake, said that Neil would just have to work throughout the day, which, given that it was the top news story at the moment, meant that we were working 12, 14-hour days, of starting with all things considered. You had an adventure with him. I'd already spent two years in the Middle East. We were in Kuwait City. I wanted to go to Basra to cover the Shiite rebellion that took place after the first Gulf War. And Neil went with me, and we were taken prisoner by the Iraqi Republican Guard. He,
0: he wasn't as prepared for it as you were.
2: Well, no, he wasn't prepared for it at all, so he was pretty spooked. But I'd been through all that kind of stuff before, so I was kind of the rock he leaned on. I just knew the roads. It doesn't mean it wasn't frightening, and which it was. We were in quite a bit of fighting the first night. We were in Basra University, and then there was a rebel attack on the university. So there was no electricity, so everything was dark, except for the tracer bullets. We had to flee to buildings into the interior of the university, and our guards were using the butts of their... AK-47s to smash through the glass so we could sit in the corridor, hoping that the rebels wouldn't get in that close. And then we were put with a light armored battalion, and there was several hours of pretty heavy fighting. But because I'd been through it, I already spent five years covering the war in El
0: Salvador. I watched out for Neil. Did they mistreat
2: uh, you? I, I mean, that was a normal reaction.
0: Yeah. Did, when you were taken prisoner, did they mistreat you?
2: No, they didn't. They really didn't. And I think it's because I speak Arabic. So I developed... We ended up with a group of two Brazilians and Uruguayan, Neil and myself. They had been captured earlier someplace else. I speak Spanish, so I spent the week of our captivity translating from Arabic to Spanish and Arabic to English for Neil. I think it's because of the Arabic they didn't, and they knew we were journalists. There was never any question. They told me to tell everyone else in the group to say that we were Yugoslavs, Yugoslav construction workers, because... They were worried after the heavy bombardment and all of the casualties that had been taken, somebody might take out a vendetta. So we were
0: honorary Yugoslavs. (laughs) <laughs> great that's sort of a bonding experience for two people to go through something like that
2: yeah maybe a little more for him than for me it had become kind
0: of part of my work environment the idea of your editor being captured with you right it's usually the reporter yeah has this relationship and the editor is back safely in the right. studio so it was
2: right well at that at, at that point i was with the new york times so i had nothing to do with npr yeah i have a great deal of affection for neil and he did come out of bai like other people at NPR. NPR, when it began, was a much more feisty, less mainstream, more edgy, more combative, much better, frankly, news organization. And Neil didn't like where it went. He really
0: didn't. He didn't like the mainstreaming of NPR. And WBAI producer Chris Hedges remembering his time with Neil Conan. And finally, the Supreme Court on Thursday issued an emergency order blocking a New York state law aimed at protecting renters from eviction during the coronavirus pandemic. The order specifically strikes down the part of the law which protects tenants who have filed a declaration of hardship. With this decision, tenant advocates say state lawmakers must return to Albany immediately to amend and extend the eviction moratorium statute to protect tens of thousands of New Yorkers from imminent eviction. Meanwhile, leaders of Housing Justice for All and New York Communities for Change called on Kathy Hochul to take action immediately to extend the state's eviction moratorium and deliver COVID rent relief as she becomes the next governor of New York. Sia Weaver, coordinator of Housing Justice for All, said we're urging Hochul to extend the eviction moratorium that's set to expire August 31st and to distribute emergency rent relief funds to tenants and landlords hit hardest by COVID. She should get to work immediately on providing relief to tenants and communities that Cuomo abandoned. Jonathan Weston, executive director of New York Communities for Change, added Andrew Cuomo harmed and wronged countless New Yorkers across the state, especially tenants in low-income communities of color. Kathy Hochul should immediately extend the eviction moratorium that saved many thousands of lives over the past year and fast-track COVID rent relief funds that Cuomo failed to put in the hands of New Yorkers struggling for survival in this time of crisis. And that's some of the news for Friday, August 13th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry, our engineer's Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.